Let's start with a little nigun this morning. Boker Tov, good morning. Great to be with you all. Excited to learn some Torah. It is healing. It is healing. As Rav Cook famously says, that when there's uh, negativity in the world, you don't fight it. Rather, you just put more positivity around you. You put more goodness around you and hope uh, and trust that it will push away the darkness. So that's our goal here, friends, on the meta level. That's our goal. And I don't know why we're focused. Uh, the gallery, can we put this on a gallery view? Is everyone see gallery now? Okay. So friends, uh, let's start with a little poll. Let's start with a little poll this morning. See where, where folks are at. Okay, can you see the poll? What is the most pressing moral issue in our time? Systemic racism, climate change, poverty, corruption, or something else? Let's give you a few seconds there to vote. Take a few seconds. Okay, let's see the results. Okay, climate change, 29%. Poverty, 14%. Corruption, 29%. Other, 29%. Very interesting. So would anyone who said other like to share what you were thinking or if somebody wants to make the case for whatever else they chose? I put other because it's all of the above. All the above, right? <laughs> yep. Okay, someone else? I chose corruption because acts all the other, the what I call systemic breakdown in morality, affects climate change, all the other issues. And you can address climate change, but if you don't address society in general, you're not going to get very far. Amazing. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, we can care about many issues at the same time. <laughs> um, unfortunately, there is a competing agenda among those who are working for the good to make sure their issue is number one, which make, can make things challenging. But okay, friends, uh, we will continue to march forward um, to address some of the great uh, ills of our day. Um, okay, uh, he's moving it to present. There we go. There we go. Okay. We're lucky to have uh, Eddie managing our slides. Okay, there we go. Friends, Malacha 35, Soter of Soter. So here we go. Destroying, destroying. Okay. The 35th Malacha out of 39, we are almost there. The 35th Malacha is Soter or destroying. And specifically refers, refers to the act of destroying built structures in order to build new ones. It is directly related to our previous malacha of bone, of building that we discussed last week, building. And that anything that was put together in a way that constituted bone could potentially be destroyed in a way that would be called soter. If one destroys something, shalom almanat leave note, not in order to rebuild, then it would not be the biblical malacha of soter but would rather fall within the category of uh, a rabbinic category of destruction referred to as makalkel, ruining. Just to rehash that again, destroying in order to rebuild 
That's so terrible. Destroying just to destroy is Makalkel, ruining. In fact, Makalkel is, is, uh, is also taken quite seriously. For example, some post-scheme feel that opening a food or drink container on Shabbat would be Makalkel. Yet, permit it if one per- opens the container in such a way that it is, it is now destroyed and no longer usable. Okay, so there is another biblical malacha of destruction not limited, uh, sorry, another biblical prohibition of destruction not limited to Shabbat called Baal Tashchit, do not destroy. This goes back to climate change. So, <laughs> right? so if somebody says, what is the environmental mandate in the Torah? The easiest, um, the easiest verse to, to go to, the easiest mandate is Baal Tashchit, which means do not destroy. The Sefer HaChinuch explains, it is likewise included under this negative precept not to cause any damage or loss. For instance, to set fire, tear clothing, or break a vessel for no purpose. Okay, so destruction is itself a prohibition in the Torah. The root reason for the precept is known, for it is in order to train our spirits to love what is good and beneficial and cling to it. And as a result, good fortune will cling to us, and we will move well away from every evil thing and from every evil matter of destructiveness. Destructiveness. This is the way of the kindly people of piety and the conscientiously observant. They love peace and they are happy at the good fortune of people and bring them near the Torah. They will not destroy even a mustard seed in the world and they are distressed at every ruination and spoilage that they see. And if they are able to do any rescuing, they will save anything from destruction with all their power. Wow, this was such a different reality from a world of disposables and a world of filling up a garbage can or recycling bin, um, a world of tearing down your home to rebuild a home, a world that really um, is constantly in remodel phase and disposable phase. And yet we see this Torah ideal of um, not destroying uh, needlessly. Anyone remember, feel free to unmute yourself. Anyone remember um, where Baltashkid emerges, the context in the Torah. It's actually very interesting. It has to do with, you'll, you'll remember this when I say it, destroying fruit-bearing trees in warfare, which is to say if you're in warfare and you come across fruit-bearing trees during warfare, that those trees ca- cannot and should not be destroyed. We think about that today in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict around trees and olive trees and the like. In any case, um, that is called Bal Tashchit, destroying needlessly. And that has to do specifically with thinking of future generations, even while we're immersed in conflict. So you're immersed in a conflict. It's a justified war. I mean, as, as justified as war can be. And even while you're in a justified war, you now are passing a plant or a tree that you could destroy because you're in warfare and you're allowed to destroy stuff in warfare and yet you can't destroy it because that's for future generations and you don't need to destroy it. So that's fascinating and that's something to think about. It's one of the earliest sources around just war theory that even where war is justified, what are some of the moral limits? And that has to do with the destruction of trees. Uh, That's why in particular, again, when we see the olive trees um, emerging in the midst of Palestinian-Israeli conflicts, or we see like donkeys with bombs on them from terrorists or the like, it's particularly disturbing um, because of, uh, well, on top of what's already disturbing. It is hard in our time of mass consumerism and constant transactions to remove ourselves from destruction. And yet we are called upon to resensitize ourselves to this. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, if you've ever been to his grave there, I don't know if you're when you go to Israel, um, one of my one of the things I like to do, among many other things, is to visit um, just amazing numbers of famous, um, prominent Jews who are buried, and sometimes very modestly, just like you wouldn't even know this was one of the great rabbis of their generation, or wouldn't even know this was a great poet or author. They're just all buried together. Here's the Ramak's humble uh, kever here in um, um, in Sfat up there in Sfat. Uh, this is Rabbi Moshe Kodavero, who is who is not a widely known name, but one of the most important early Kabbalists and Musar teachers in Sfat. And he writes, one's compassion should extend to all creatures and one should neither despise nor destroy them for the wisdom above extends to all creation, inanimate objects, plants, animals, and humans. Now, this is very interesting because we know how important humans are. This emerges in all of our Jewish teachings. 
okay, we also know that animals are important. They're not humans, but we understand we don't want to cause needless suffering to animals. And then plants and inanimate objects, like what would that be about? And the Ramak as a Kabbalist who believes there are sparks of holiness in everything, in everything there are sparks of holiness, asks the question, what are we doing in the world when we destroy things? Now, of course, a rock is not holy, right? Certainly, we're not, we're not Hindus who think that God is in the rock. Yes, there may be sparks of holiness, but we don't worship a rock, right? And so we're not so concerned with the sanctity of a rock. And yet, what does it mean to be sensitized towards all, um, not only life, but all existence, right? That we, we don't want to be a moral relativist where the rock matters the same as a, as a worm and the worm matters the same as a dog and the dog matters the same as a human. We don't want to conflate layers of dignity and importance. And yet, what does it mean to spiritually sensitize ourselves towards conservation? Even further, we should consider the need to avoid unnecessary destruction, not only as a matter of personal responsibility. Indeed, we should also exercise empathy, taking account of how others feel when their objects have been destroyed. For example, I don't care about a rock, right? A rock is not a human. It's not an animal. It doesn't have feelings. But what if the neighbor allows their dog to go to the bathroom on my rock, right? Then do I care, right? <laughs> when the neighbor right? Then all of a sudden, whoa, this is a violation of my personal property, right? Your, your dog, where's your poopy bag or whatever you're supposed to bring with your dog, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden, this is your personal object. And so it, it starts to matter. So too, how do we think of objects in the world as uh, a part of someone's sense of belonging? Yes, the rock, again, is not godly, even though there's sparks of holiness in everything the Kabbalists would suggest. And yet, there are people who feel connected to objects. This is why the Chafetz Chaim felt about Shmirat Talashon, about our ethics of speech, that we should be cautious in how we critique objects. You're walking with someone and you're like, oh, isn't that yellow car kind of a gross color? And they're like, um, my favorite sweater is exactly that color. And they don't say it. And so you've now offended this person. And so even the way we talk about objects, not only people can have layers of sensitivity involved with it. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, teaches when a child's toy breaks, we should assume the child feels as bad as an adult would feel if their factory were destroyed. Wow. So unfortunately, there are teachings like this that, um, that sometimes haunt me, and thus I have to live up to the ideas that I espouse to teach. Um, that's one of the blessings and cursings, curses of attempting to be an educator is that you actually have to try to live what you're trying to share. And so I remember teaching this idea. And later that night, my two-year-old daughter's uh, doll breaking. And I was like, ah, just a doll. We'll buy another one in a week. And I was like, wait a minute. Didn't I just say today, Rabbi Yisra Salanter says that if your child's toy breaks, you should think of it as a parent's factory breaks. And if my factory burnt down, so to speak, would I say, oh, you know what, I'll get a new one next week? Or would I expect everyone to help me in my time of crisis? And so I ran out to the store that night and had to buy that doll and, and had to make it happen. And, um, and so this is, um, this is one of the interesting things about human psychology in that we can never access what matters to someone else in the same way. You know, if you've ever been startled by someone who's not so emotionally affected by a parent dying, you're like, wait a minute, this, you're not affected? Like when this happened to me, I was like in mourning for five years, I could hardly like breathe. And you're kind of, you know, and the opposite. You see somebody who's very worked up about something that you'd never get worked up about. We can't access each other's systems in how we emotionally respond to loss. Diff very different kinds of loss. You know, the things that work me up and the things that don't work me up, sometimes it's, it's, um, it's, not even, it's not even predictable. There has been so much destruction in the past and that occurs in the present that it's difficult even to know how or where to rebuild. Where do we rebuild from past destruction? The late Adrian Rich, anyone ever read her poetry? Adrian Rich? From 19, she lived in, from 1929 to 2021. Oh, I didn't even realize she died. Wait a minute. She died, when did she die? She just must have just died. Um, anyways, 
she offers us this meaningful poem. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. The dream of a common language. And so even as we are in touch with all the destruction, we have to choose to align ourselves with those who are a part of rebuilding, rebuilding, not selfish personal building exclusively, not just sitting in the place of mourning, but being in a process of rebuilding. While we cannot stop all destruction, the most important choice for us is to be on the side of rebuilding. But this is not easy. Throughout history, many have tried to destroy the Jewish people. Consider that the Arch of Titus in Rome, raise your hand if you've been there. Have you seen this? The Arch of Titus in Rome, which was built as a monument to celebrate the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. According to leading archaeologists, the first record of the Jewish people in history, let me repeat that, the first record of the Jewish history and people outside of the Torah's accounting is in the Merneptah. Is that how you pronounce it? Merneptah. Merneptah steel, which contains a text about an Egyptian pharaoh dating from the 13th century BCE. It states, Israel is laid to waste. Israel is laid waste. His seed is no more. I mean, isn't that amazing, friends? That the very first record outside of the Torah of the Jewish people is a claim that the Jewish people have been destroyed and no longer exist. This first allusion to Jews in history boasts that they are destroyed. Indeed, one way to tell the Jewish story is through the various attempts of nations obsessed with our malacha today of Soter. Those who believe their constructive act in the world is actually an act of destruction. They will be a destroyer, and that is what is going to give them their prominence. Only by destroying the eternal chosen people could a nation view itself as truly victorious. And that is why one of the eternal roles of the Jewish people in, 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 over the millennia has been the people you want to conquer in order to become an eternal people. If you can conquer and destroy the seed of Israel, you will now be eternally the most powerful. It is not only about, friends, th that's, that's what's amazing. If you think about, if, if you think about the Nazi regime, the Jews are not the powerful establishment to beat. To you want to you want to overcome the Soviet Union. You want to beat Russia, right? You want to overcome America. Who do you want to conquer? France. I mean, the the the, 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 the there was no Jewish state. Yes, Jews have power. Jews had power, but Jews were also 18 million people. There were 18 million Jews, right? Why do you want to destroy the Jews? It makes you eternal. It's beyond the power of the moment. Right? To beat the Jews places you somewhere in history um, of, 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 of deep, uh, powerful prominence. Consider the national catastrophe for the Jewish people found in the destruction of the Second Temple. How do we rebuild from that? At the beginning of his book, Community of Faith, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, a Jewish legend, I, I think the source is amazing, which is why I put a huge footnote to, to, to trace where it comes from. A Jewish legend says that when the temple was destroyed, splinters from its stones entered the hearts of the Jewish people. When they gathered as Knesset Yisrael, the congregation of Israel united across space and time in the collective service of God. They became a kind of human temple. And in their lives, the divine presence found its earthly home. Friends, I just want to share how, how remarkable the text this is. What this is saying is that when the temple was destroyed, how do we bring that 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 dwelling place of God back in the world among the among among Israel? Is that those splinters of the temple moved into our hearts, and when we come together as a as a as a broader community, it is as if the temple is rebuilt. This is remarkable. This is a case for pluralism, religious pluralism. Right. Because it's not talking about your shul, nothing against shuls. Right. But it's saying like, OK, 
there's something almost, um, I don't want to overstate this, um, the narcissism of micro community. The narcissism of micro community is like, okay, I want to be in community just like me. Like, we're not, we're not like traditional reform. We're, li- we're progressive reform. We're not traditional conservative. We're liberal conservative. We're like not this, we're not like modern orthodox or centrist. We're, we're liberal orthodox. We're, we're, but we're this Zionist type. We're this, we're this ideology. There's almost a narcissism of building a community that's like exactly me. I want the community to look just like me. Everyone thinks like me and acts like me, right? But actually here, it's like when you build a broader Israel community, right, built on religious pluralism, the temple is rebuilt. The diversity of Klal Yisrael and the and 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 the splintered nature and the stones from that temple come together from those from those hearts to re, to rebuild the Mikdash and the Shekhinah can once again dwell. This is an amazing thing about diversity, an amazing thing about having building eclectic spiritual moral communities, and that is friends how we build rebuild the temple and bring Mashiach. It is not through promoting our own our own ideology as much as possible. Everyone should be my ideology exactly, but rather hold this space together where we can be together. So that's interesting. So what are we talking about now? Now we're talking about how we respond to destruction. And one way to respond to destruction is to try to rebuild exactly what was there, right? That's interesting. When 9-11 happened, what do you do? What do you what do you build in the space of 9-11? What do you build in place of the Twin Towers? Do you build two new Twin Towers? Do you make them a foot taller, a foot shorter? Do you build a monument? Uh, I, I, do you build something new? Do you sell the real estate and bank out on it? Uh, what do you build in that? What do you build in that space? You know, and so too here, what do you build in place of where the temple stood? Okay, how do we respond to past destruction? How do we rebuild? How did the Jewish people access the resiliency to continue to rebuild in a way that is old and new? How in our own lives, in our own traumas, do we rebuild from loss? When you can't replicate what once was, and yet you can't lose touch with what once was. How do you hold on to memory and yet also rebuild for the future? Sometimes we rebuild something exactly as it was before it was destroyed. Other times we build something new in place of what once stood with regard to the temple, while many yearn for a third permanent one, let's consider how we can rebuild a less lofty holy space in the meantime, perhaps, until the final redemption takes place. Sometimes we are so filled with righteous indignation that we end up bringing more heat than light to a situation. We've all done that, right? We bring more heat than light in a conflict. Consider how the Rashbi and his son left the loving mystical experiences of the cave with fury at commoners and a desire to destroy them. This is one of the top 100 most famous Talmudic cases. So I'm sure you've seen or heard this before. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son went out and they saw men plowing and sowing. They said, oh, they forsake eternal life, the Chaye Olam, and they busy themselves with temporal life, Chaye Sha'a. Everywhere they turn their eyes in disapproval it was immediately burned. A heavenly voice went out and said to them, did you go out to destroy my world? Return to your cave. So indeed, the Rashbi and his son had very holy motives. They now had a, they had a, they had a um, transformative, immersive experience. And based on that, they come back and they can't believe that nobody cares. Nobody cares. And they want to burn the place around them. This is like, this is, um, you know, it's funny. I was, on, I, I was on the first year of Birthright. The very first year that Birthright was offered, I was on that. And uh, so I became a poster boy for Birthright in some ways early on. And, uh, and I remember being on the International Committee for Birthright. And they said to us in this study, and I was on the International Board of Hillel, and they said to us over there, they said, um, and I'm sure the stats are different today, one third of people who went on Birthright, their lives were transformed, right, in their Jewish commitment. Another third, their lives were transformed if there was positive, constructive follow-up. The third group, they weren't affected at all. It was like a, it was like a party. It was like they enjoyed the bars of Tel Aviv, but they, it was like they could have, they could have gone on a vacation to Hawaii. It would have been the exact same experience, right? Okay, yeah, it was fun. Oh, that's Israel. Like, it, like it was nice to have some falafel, but really, uh, they came back and they went back to their normal lives. 
So it's interesting when we think about immersive experiences and who is affected and how. And when I've come back from immersive experiences, as many of us have, maybe a negative immersive experience like sitting Shiva, uh, maybe a positive immersive experience like a honeymoon or like a service learning trip, or maybe you went on a study mission, you know, through, you know, the concentration camps or a study mission in Israel. And you come back and you're like, wow, I care so much. Why don't other people care as much as I do? You know, and um, and that's what's happening to the Rashi here. He's fired up from his cave and he wants to burn the people. What, you're just going to your jobs? Don't you know we're going to die soon? And you're just like going out to make money, like eat, drink and be merry. Don't you see? Don't you see the deeper reality? And he can't live with them. He, he can't live with them. And so the, it says, go back to your cave because you're more destructive in your holiness than you are constructive. And so it is challenging to be loud enough, yet not too loud in our advocacy to create change. When we are trying to create change in the Jewish people and in the world, how do we be so loud and fervent, but not too loud and not too fervent? Some people are always going to say, you're too loud. And others are going to say, why aren't you out there? You got you to be more fervent, right? And um, those critiques can come from uh, can both directions. The Talmudic rabbis imagine that God has the same problem. God has the problem. Is God loud enough? Here we go. We read in the Midrash that Rav Yehuda Bar Nehemia said that since Moshe was a beginner, when it came to hearing God's word, HaKadosh Baruch who reasoned, if I reveal myself to him in my awesome voice, I run the risk of destroying him. On the other hand, if I speak with a soft voice, he will regard my word as trivial. So God is struggling with the same thing that activists struggle with. How loud do I be? If I'm quiet, he's going to think this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're not, I'm not louder. If I'm too loud, he's going to be shaking in his boots. I'll, I'll destroy him in, 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 in how loud I am. How loud are we about social evils? How loud are we about this problem? This is a parenting question. This morning, one of my children, I won't, I won't say which, <laughs> um, wasn't getting out of bed. So I, I, uh, I, I gave this child a kiss. I said, come on, time to get up. I come back five minutes later. I give a kiss and a back rub. Five minutes later, a little bit of a shake. Come on, time to go. Five minutes later, okay, a few claps. Let's go, time to go. <laughs> five minutes later, get out of bed. You're late for school. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so sometimes there's a progression. There's a progression from uh, a gentle kiss and reminder to, uh, you know, to a scream, to a scream. And yet, uh, and so friends, God is struggling with the same thing about how loud we be. Here we strive to learn how to be courageous yet humble, to be bold yet quiet, to be fierce yet gentle. This is also true in the halachic tradition. We wish to prohibit all that is bad, but also to be honest and measured. Consider the Maharshal's view on that which is morally disgusting, but not technically forbidden. If a behavior is halakhically permissible, but regarded by distinguished rabbis as destructive, either personally or communally, it must be presented as such, but not as halakhically prohibited. To do so would be akin to heresy in terms of the Maharshal's view. So friends, <laughs> so friends, this is an interesting debate. Do we wish to say everything bad Judaism prohibits, or do we wish to say Judaism has prohibited a certain number of things? There are other things that are disgusting, but we want to be honest that they're not prohibited. I'm sure if I gave you test cases, you would fall out in different places on them. Um, and, and, um, uh, and we could return to this. But one of the things I know, and I have committed my rabbinate to, is being honest about the sources. There are many who don't wish to show the sources and merely claim that what they're saying are permitted is actually the dominant thrust of the tradition. Or what they're saying is prohibited is the dominant thrust when actually there's a whole lot more to the story. And so how do we be honest to the tradition while also, while also being morally robust? Let me give... Um, 
let me give some reprehensible, let me give just one reprehensible example just to make the point. There are some minority views that emerge in Jewish tradition, and of course we should understand the context of anti-Semitism where they emerge, that said, if you find the lost ab object of a Jew, you must return the lost object. If you find the lost object of a Gentile, you don't have to return it, right? With the assumption of these are Gentiles who want to kill you, these are Gentiles who are robbing you, and in this moment where you have found some object and it is a Gentile and you don't think you'll be caught, you need not return it. This minority view does emerge in our tradition, and yet um, I would honestly teach that text because it's there, and yet I would repudiate such a text. I would repudiate such a text and say we are morally obligated to return lost objects, right? Let me give another case. It does obviously does not say in the Torah it is prohibited to smoke cigarettes, right? And yet, what do we do? If we come to the conclusion that smoking cigarettes is bad for one's health, or let me give another case. Let's say we found that wearing a mask in a pandemic was the, the public health responsibility. And obviously there's no text that, that clearly identifies that mandate to not smoke cigarettes or to wear masks. Yes, we can try to cling it to general mandates around health. And yet we wanna be honest to the tradition that there's some gap there. What about kitniot on Pesach? How we talk about kitniot and other things. Okay, anyways, anyways, I'm, I'm getting too far, too far off topic here. But what was the point here? The point here is this idea of how to balance being courageous and humble, bold and quiet, fierce and gentle, being honest and robust at the same time. Here's another case this emerges, friends. There is no, and I, I imagine most of us are in this case, there is no political debate out there. Uh, well, uh, let's say, I, I, uh, let me not, not go too far. There is no long lasting major political debate out there where there is not some degree of merit to the other side. I'm sure we all know this is true. Take gun control and gun rights, right? Take pro-choice and pro-life. Take, take immigration. Um, there are very few issues that don't have some kernel of truth in the opposite view of where you stand, right? And how do we fight for what we know is 99% is or 90% or 80% just, and also be a little bit honest, not a little bit, as honest as possible about the other position that's out there um, while still fighting for what we know to be true and just. Okay. Of course, there are limited cases where destruction may be necessary. We're talking now about how to limit destruction, and yet it may be necessary. Consider God's flooding of the world or God's destruction of Sodom for being purely wicked. But those are for God to decide. We are called to restraint. On Shabbat, we have the spiritual opportunity to reflect not only on how we build, but also on how we destroy we can destroy dignity with cruel words. We can destroy self-esteem with neglect of others. We can destroy as a society, another country through military hawkism. We can destroy the planet through overconsumption, waste and greed. It is not easy to remove oneself from being complicit in the malacha of Soter, but the first step on Shabbat is coming to realize this reality and contemplating one's own means of engaging in the act of bona, of building, and at the same time, fine-tuning one's, one's necessary soter, one's destruction. Okay, friends, let me just glance at this chat here. I'm sorry I wasn't able to monitor over there. And let's welcome folks uh, into the conversation. Oh, thank you for that, Eileen. Um, I didn't see that until just now. That, that Adrian Rich died, oh, oh, 2012. Oh, so that's an error in my notes. That's why I was so confused by 2021. So thank you for that correction. Thank you for that correction. Okay. Rabbi, I have a question regarding the notion of destruction and the notion of, I think you, this has been an amazing session and I like the how you distinguish between the notion of destru uh, destroying for the notion of rebuilding versus the, the, the other notion of destruction. Um, what I'm kind of curious, and I know that I've been 
I know in Judaism, the notion of rebuilding is important, but where is it where rebuild, where destruction of the notion of rebuilding is, is a prohibition in the context of, of a physical structure? I'm talking physical or I'm talking um, kind of a, of a non-tangible tangible, uh, destruction where we are prohibited to rebuild. Okay, great question. Um, where we are prohibited to rebuild. You know, oh my goodness, it's so, such an obvious text. I can't believe I didn't bring it in here. Um, let me just pull this up really quickly because it's such a great point you're bringing up, Eric. Um, one second. Okay, here we go. Um, you know what? You know what? I'm not going to um, get too sidetracked here. There is a great Talmudic Makalokit, a great debate around um, praying in a place of destruction of praying in a place of destruction, whether we are allowed to do that. And uh, maybe I'll bring that next time so I, we can look at it on the inside of the text. But, um, but your question around uh, rebuilding is very fascinating. Um, and uh, around tangible objects to start, um, uh, Maimonides went very far on this point. He felt that we couldn't even destroy a bottle. You can't destroy a bottle. If something is, a, is something of use, you can't make it something of non-use. This is building off Aristotle's uh, notions of uh, uh, called the capacity approach. The sorry, the capabilities approach. That anything that has a capacity or a capability, we have done something wrong by by removing its usefulness or its capability. Um, so and so that's kind of an interesting framework to think about about what it means to make something useful no longer useful something that serves a purpose, removing it from serving that purpose. Um, but Eric, your, your broader, your broader, yeah, praying at the wall, Eileen, that, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, um, uh, your broader point there around uh, not destroying, sorry, not rebuilding something is something I want to look into. I'm actually uh, not sure. I wonder if others have thoughts on this. A case when you cannot rebuild something that has been destroyed. Let me, let me uh, sit with that a little bit. Um, along with that, at the destruction of the towers, the choice to not rebuild, but to make it a memorial with um, lights, the lights are not permanent. It's transitory. And I think that carries a stronger message than rebuilding a building in its place. Very interesting. Thank you, Eileen. What about a relationship? Relationships that maybe a relation, let's say in a divorce situation where a relationship is just, you know, something is destroyed. I mean, obviously the marriage comes to an end officially. Um, you, you know, you might rebuild, I, I shouldn't say rebuild, you might build a different type of relationship depending upon the circumstances, but you wouldn't be rebuilding the exact relationship that had been destroyed by the divorce, for example. Right, right. Yes, um, this, this is a great point. And um, we can look at it through bro both frameworks, the one that Cheryl brings here, um, where it does dissolve. Um, and also this one around um, where the relationship doesn't dissolve. Um, and yet there's been, a, uh, there's been a breach of trust or of confidence. Um, and someone w wishes to rebuild within that framework still. But when there's a dissolving, this is, um, this, is, this is very actually interesting when you look at this, uh, uh, at this psychology, you know, and tell me if this is different than your experience. My experience with people who have been divorced and look to start new relationships is they heavily look for someone who's in many ways the opposite of what they hated the most in their previous partner. Um, sometimes far over over overcompensate um, in that direction in a way that leads to other a new set of problems. 
Um, but one is so desperate to find someone who is in, at least in that specific area. Um, I think of uh, someone in my own family who uh, she was, uh, she was married to a very uh, kind of straight type of cop. And then she married like a rock band guy who was very loose and like, just like a totally different personality type. Um, and so there is something like that. There's also the case, the tragic case of the loss of a child, the loss of a child where sometimes after, when a new child is born, there's a great difficulty in not seeing that previous child in the new child, uh, that relationship. Um, and so, um, uh, and so this is, this is, uh, this is of course very uh, complicated as it comes to transference and, and other psychological maneuvers around how we, uh, and projections, how we see others within others see others as opposites of others we didn't like, see others as similar, similar to others who we long to be with. In fact, this is how Isaac, when Isaac marries, if I, is it Yitzchak? I'm pretty sure it's Yitzchak who marries right after his mother dies, uh, right? And, uh, and it says there in the commentaries in the Mepharshim that he was basically marrying his mother, right? His mother was his source of stability in the world. And as soon as his mother was gone, he needed this new partner, this new person, this new woman. And she basically became, and I think some people view their partners like that. A husband can be like a father. A wife can be like a mother. Um, some people have a relationship which is distinct and yet it overlaps with a past relationship that is, that is, that is gone um, in many ways. Um, I, I, you know, you, so maybe someone wants to reflect also if you've been a grandparent and in what ways you view a grandchild in a way that is kind of becoming a parent again, or in what way that grandchild is, is in some ways overlapping in their identity with your own child's identity of the past. I, Rabbi, I wanted to say something about destroying and rebuilding. It depends on, on how, a pro, uh, how something was destroyed or why it was destroyed. So you could rebuild to build better and you could rebuild for memory, for memorial sake. I'm thinking of the Auschwitz, right? Um, so there are different reasons for rebuilding and there is, there's not one answer. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, um, Carol. So um, thank you for that. And, you know, that's actually uh, triggering some memories now and uh, how your question's related, your point is related to Eric's. Um, where Eric, actually the only case I can think of, normally we say when something is destroyed, you rebuild and you rebuild stronger. You know, there's a fire at your synagogue. So you don't say, oh, too bad. Like, let's close up shop. You, you raise the funds, you get the insurance claims, whatever you got to do, you rebuild and you rebuild better, right? But the case, the only prohibition of rebuilding I can think of is actually the temple. You're not allowed to rebuild the temple. There are people today who want to get on the temple mount. They want to build a third temple right now. They've got even these organizations in, in the old city that are, are making the replicas of what things will look like. They are ready to go. It is a prohibition to rebuild the temple until um, a messianic era. And so that is kind of an interesting uh, case um, that emerges over there, where normally there's there's not such a uh, there's not such a prohibition. Now there is in, in, a, in a slightly related way, um, and I hope this isn't uh, offensive in any way. Uh, but there is a um, a traditional framework that um, that uh, uh, <laughs> kedusha can go up, not down, and the way that plays out with institutional structures is. Let's say you have to sell your synagogue because you're merging or you are um, building a new land or you're closing shop. You can't sell to a, um, another religion. You can't sell your synagogue to become a church or a mosque. You can buy the mosque or the church and make it into a synagogue, but you can't sell your synagogue. To become so how do you do it? Because who wants a synagogue, right? Maybe a movie theater, but who wants it? I mean, probably a house of worship based on how it's built. And so the way we get around it is you, have, you make a legal transaction where you sell to a party in between, in between the two parties so that the, so that the sale can go through. And of course, maybe outside of a traditionalist framework, maybe synagogues aren't concerned with such, with such, with, with such issues. But here the idea is you're basically, uh, destroying is a little strong, but dismantling the institution as a synagogue 
And so how do you allow that space to be rebuilt um, beyond your own uh, identity there? And kind of, that's interesting how there's a memory. Here's another case. You can't take down your mezuzahs on your home um, if a Jew is moving in, right? You can't take your mezuzahs down because, um, uh, uh, and you know, so if, it, if it's not a Jew moving in, no problem. Or if the Jew is moving in and they say, it's okay, you can take them. But so too, you're dismantling this as your home destroying is a little too strong, but you're removing your, your Jewish home identity. And yet the, the structure is still there. There's still some responsibility to the structure. Okay. Someone else uh, want to jump in? Ever, yeah, um, I, yeah, Rabbi, yeah. I have a, a small factual question and then my usual Shabbat question. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the 39 Melachot are based on what was done to build the tabernacle, the, the Mishkan. So, so the little question is, where is destruction used to build the Mishkan? And then my usual question is, so what's the takeaway for Shabbat? What are we supposed to think about in terms of destruction during Shabbat? Okay, wonderful question. Wonderful question. Um, so, uh, um, to start with your second point, um, on Shabbat, and I would open this up to others as well, I would suggest that um, we are, um, if we move from the grandiose, the, you know, uh, knocking down of buildings, but we think in metaphorical ways and, 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 and in other ways about, about the, the notion of destruction, um, when it, when it, again, when it's constructive or when it's not constructive, I think we can move to a mindset that it is constantly happening. Building and dismantling and destroying is something that is constantly happening around us and within us. And, um, and that we are both actively doing it and that we are complicit in some ways. Complicit is a little judgmental. That we are connected to it being done. And that it's not always bad. That it's not always bad. There are things that should be, that can be destroyed that can be discarded, that can be dismantled. And yet, how do we sensitize ourselves to that process of what that looks like? Um, uh, and what that looks like historically and what that looks like consciously and what that looks like physically. Again, there are so many concrete examples. I don't wanna to move towards them about how we use garbage and waste because there's also, again, how we use words, how we use land, how we think about, um, you know, there's a new trend today when you talk about where you live to talk about the, 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 the native tribes that once existed on that land um, and to understand the history to the land that we're on, that it's not merely something uh, without a past life. Um, and so I, I think that Shabbat is a great time to think about um, what we are dismantling and what is being dismantled around us. And at the very least to cultivate an awareness of, of such things. You know, another, another way to think of it is we think of relationships that just fade away from our lives for various reasons, um, sometimes uh, very harshly and, and, and dramatically, and other times very passively and over time. And just to be very uh, conscious about the choices we're making that move mm -hmm. in one direction or another. Uh, as to your wonderful first question, I'm actually going to get back to you on that because I have a hunch and yet I'm only... 80% sure, and I want to be 100 before I respond. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to respond to that soon. Yeah. Someone else, please. Thank you. I, so I would respond. What I remember um, about the Mishkan was the dismantling was that we moved around. So it had to be totally re, you know, taken apart, which is why all the pieces were marked. That's and exactly then the right. wagons were moved, and there was this whole choreography. It wasn't so simple. And then it was put together again. So I believe that that's where the Melico come from. That is exactly, it, that's exactly right. That's, that, that's what I'm seeing. Because we just, we just, uh, I've been doing the DOPS, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. Yep. And we Great, thank lot. you. But um, what came to me about the um, taking apart and dismantling is we're involved in this very deep conversation, a lot of us in this country about institutional racism and police departments. And there's a conversation of what we do about police departments. Do we totally dismantle them and take them apart? and replace them with community you know, members that are 
dealing mm. with situations in a less uh, confrontational way with no guns, or are we simply looking at reform? So this is a huge um, uh, discussion right now, and it's really a big problem. Yep. Okay, so this is great. This is great, Andrea. Thank you for that. And um, so to pick up on your second point before your first, that I think that if we wish to dismantle evils and we wish to get consensus or enough consensus on how to do that, then I think we have to address the fear that comes along with people of dismantling things that have been become known and relied upon. Um, whatever our views are on policing and, and, and dismantling, um, we'd have to build enough confidence in whatever new models were going to be offered. Um, or think about you know, like, and, and how we manage that change and manage that loss for other people. You know, as I've quoted before, we, that we say in psychoanalysis, that it's violent to strip someone's foundation without providing a new foundation, right? People need somewhere to land if you're going to pull away a, a foundation for them. Right. And so we always have to think about that when we're managing change, we're managing loss for other people. We have to build confidence in where we're going to land. So, too, I think so much fear among um, Jews, among Zionists, among Israelis around a peace process is like, OK, we could talk about peace, but will we be OK in the new structure, whether this is two states, this is going to be a um, uh, a, a confederation. This is going to be um, a one state. Put everything on the table. Are we going to be okay in this new? And so too, like, okay, I'm thinking about moving towards divorce. That looks a lot better. But will I be okay emotionally, financially, like if I move forward in this? You know, all these things about managing change and managing loss. Now, one other point, building on Rabbi Biller's uh, point, and then Andrea's uh, 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 great reminder about 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 the disassembling. I think this adds a whole nother layer about Shabbat because how many of you enjoy cooking a meal more than cleaning up a meal? <laughs> okay. Now um, I tend in my family to be on the cleanup side more than the cooking side because um, I, I, I burn oatmeal. Uh, <laughs> I do, uh, I do manage to get a few things in the oven and microwave and stove, but anything complicated, um, you know, is usually, uh, uh, I'm more on the cleaning side, let's say. So in any case, I think one of the cool spiritual meditations that can emerge is the spirituality of disassembling. Here we're dealing with soter. We're dealing with the destruction, but destruction was such a harsh word. And I'm, that's why I'm so glad Andrea brought us back based on Rabbi Biller's point there around the disassembling of the Mishkan to continue traveling to reassemble, right? We clean up the meal. We put away the leftover food. We throw away the trash. We wash the dishes. A few hours later, we reset the table, right? And this is an amazing thing because we love the new beginning. Oh, the fresh linen, the clean plates, right? The, 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 the fresh food. And yet the spirituality of disassembling, of putting things away and seeing the meaning. It, it, it feels like drudgery because it's not constructive, but it's destructive and enable to enable the constructive. It's disassembling in order to reassemble. And this, friends, is something that um, has a lot of potential for things that we find annoying in our lives. Uh, things that we find annoying in our lives and finding the meaning of the traveling of the Mishkan. So I'm so glad you both uh, brought us in that direction. Let me say another way to say that. Think of a surgery. A surgery feels like only horrible. You have to replace a knee, right? You've got a, a hernia. You know, it feels like only a burden, only a curse. Of course it is, right? And yet, like, um, how do we think about those barriers, putting away the food that doesn't feel constructive, but as, as a means towards a new beginning? How do we think about such surgeries as a rebuilding stronger? How do we find meaning in such uh, disassemblies? I, I, I wanna pick up on that a little bit. Um, you know, traditionally that act of um, disassembling was women's work. We women did it again and again and again and again. And it's holy work but it wasn't really valued so much as um, now, you know, people are assessing the monetary value of that. And, and 
in this generation, uh, you, uh, you know, Shmuley and my son certainly participate in that work. But that was like, since time immemorial, that's what women did. We cook, we clean, and we put it back together in some mm -hmm. order in our kitchens and household. And it really was holy work, uh, just yeah. as Mishkan was, taking yeah. it apart, putting it back together in a kind of a sacred way. Yep. You know, these, these tasks that are constant and, um, uh, and are putting back together the folding of laundry, right? I mean, like uh, the folding of laundry, the cleaning of dishes, these things that you're right, were normally, were normally loaded upon women's backs and shoulders, um, you know, historically. And, um, uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that, that reminder and the opportunities there. Yeah, and Vicky's point here in the chat is also really helpful that um, in rebuilding, we don't, uh, we have to go through this process as well of shedding behaviors and biases that accumulated, right? This is such an amazing opportunity to think about that when we, when we disassemble in order to reassemble, it is also a growth experience. We're not just rebuilding what once was there. But, but trying to grow in that. I mean, um, this, is, um, th this, is, this, is, this is truly uh, uh, such a remarkable point. And I wonder if anyone wants to build on that. Um, kind of ra randomly related, I think. Um, you know, when, when the, sometimes there's a shooting somewhere and then you see the school principal that day or that Monday say, you know, we're, we're moving forward. It's like, it just, it makes me crazy. There, there's no recognition of the letting go process because there's such a focus always on the building. So maybe this is like the sacredness of what it takes to let go of what was. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, right. You know that that it that's that that's uh it's such a profound point, and I think that we're really dealing with this all the time on that point and similar ones, um, in terms of how we rebuild trust, how we rebuild culture, and I think, friends, one of the hardest areas is when it's actually the end of a chapter. We're not disassembling in order to reassemble. If you require in our opening on the biblical level, there was soter, disassemble to assemble. The rabbinic level was makalkel. That is destroying without a, a plan to rebuild, right? And there, what we're dealing with is when you can't imagine in your mind a new chapter. Now, let me give something that's, that's not as dramatic as really dramatic cases. But when you become an empty nester overnight, someone has, a, has, their, uh, a, a single, uh, has one child, or let's say their last child, and the last child moves out of the house, Right. Um, if, if, if you've been with us in past sessions, you know, this is one of my great anxieties of life. And you've all counseled me to understanding that it all happens in a process and over time. Um, and yet, um, I, I often think about how long a parent keeps their child's room, if, if they were fortunate to have a room, their room. And I know some people, their child moves out of the house to go to college or get a job, wherever they're going. And the next day, they're like, boom, exercise room. Boom. <laughs> like, I finally got a library like amazing, like I wanted that room. I know others, it takes them 15 years to disassemble that room, right? And sometimes because they can't psychologically let go of it being that child's room. And other times because um, they want that child to come back and feel like it's their room. They want it to be, feel like it's their home, right? And there's all these different reasons there. But when do we disassemble the room in order to uh, assemble? And when you say, geez, this chapter is over, this child doesn't live in my home anymore. Right? That's such a profound shift. And, and that chapter is over. Like, is, it, is that just an end or is that a rebuilding of a new phase? And what does that look like? And friends, we are always doing this. We are always doing this holy work. And I think that um, this, these thresholds, these transitions, this is the last point I'll make, is the bracha of the mezuzah. The mezuzah, friends, is right there on the doorpost to remind us that we live in a world of transitions. We are constantly at marking ends and new beginnings, constantly. And yes, we may construct narratives that look like it's not happening all the time, but it is happening all the time. 
of, of, of uh, these ends and beings. And the mezuzah is there to say, bring the integrity of the holiness and your values as you pass through the doorway. As you mark these destructions and these disassemblies and you mark these reassemblies and these new beginnings, kiss the mezuzah on your path to be gentle with yourself, to be gentle with others and bring these holy words with you as you disassemble and as you reassemble. See you for 36 next week. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining.